0: St. Matthew chapter 5 is working okay all right so in uh, the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 we come across this section of scripture that's very unique and it's called the Sermon on the Mount and it's Jesus teaching by the way when they taught in the first century the teachers the teachers would sit Pastor. and those listening would stand so for this sermon today <laughs> for the next 30 minutes I want all y'all to stand up and I'm gonna sit on this <laughs> green stool here and <laughs> no just kidding I'm not gonna do that uh, they, they, the uh, teachers the rabbis The elders would stand, would sit rather, and those in the crowd would would stand and listen. Uh, There were no amphitheaters per se, other than the ones that were naturally formed in the hills and mountains and valleys and bluffs, but there were certainly no PA systems like what we enjoy today but the word was able to to be made known and be able to- And we're having problems with the PA system. Your your mic is really low. Okay, it's low, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna use How about this mic right here, is this better? Perfect. Okay. Okay. So see, even they didn't have PA system issues back then because they didn't have microphones. Okay, so can everybody hear me okay now? all right great is that better gloria yes sir okay great let me just take this out because i know i won't be able to always stand still all right so uh in saint matthew 5 uh, we want to just explore for uh, a few weeks just what jesus talked about in this great sermon on the mount and here's what he says here in verse chapter 5 verse 1 it says when jesus saw the crowds He went up to the mountain, or went up on the mountain, the New American Standard says, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Um, One translation says they shall be satisfied and finally verse 10 we're going to drop down to verse 10 and it says blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word so the word blessed. And if you look at each of these Beatitudes, there's been some debate over how many at Beatitudes there were. Were there eight? Were there six? Were there ten? I'm going to go on record and saying there are eight Beatitudes. If you look at it, I see eight blessed. The word Beatitude means blessed or favor or honored. The word blessed itself is defined as being happy or fortunate or highly favored the greek word actually for blessed which is the same definition as beatitude means to be enlarged how many want to be enlarged not physically necessarily enlarged but enlarged in our spirit enlarged in our in our blessings to him enlarged in our in our in our prosperity period amen there's nothing wrong with wanting to be prosperous as long as it's not at the expense of wanting to be saved and wanted to be righteous to God, which we'll talk about. So this enlargement, which reminds me of the prayer of Jabez, when he prayed, Lord, Lord, I wish you would enlarge, I would that you would enlarge my coast, enlarge my influence, enlarge my domain, enlarge my, my blessings, amen? Nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to enlargement, the Bible says that Blessed is what God does. Blessings come from him, and he brings us enlargement. He brings us favor. He brings us happiness. So these beatitudes, the Greek word there is makarios. It's spelled M-A-K-A-R-I-O, and I think I put it in my notes, R-I-O-S. It, it means to be favored or biblically happy that happiness that's not based upon a temporary state of pleasure is not based upon an external circumstances. It's happiness that's based upon contentment, favor and blessings from God. That's true happiness. Matter of fact, I usually define happiness and joy being as joy is happiness. That's uncircumstantial or unconditional. Happiness is based upon happenstance or circumstances or what's going on at a given time. Joy is based on a contentment. It's based on a confidence that we have in God that we know and that we're able to enjoy regardless of what's going on outside of us. Amen? All right. You all still with me? Okay, so the word righteous is there's there's three terms that I really kind of want to describe, define a little bit. I hope that'll help us get a better understanding. The word righteous or righteousness. You know, back in the '60s and '70s, culture. Remember this, brother, 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 Kola. Remember this too. We used to say, you know, that's a righteous dude. You know, I was a righteous brother. Oh, man, that's my righteous man. You know, that's my dude there. He's righteous. Rod, you've heard that term before. Well, when we were talking about a person being righteous, you know, um, we were re- really referring to a guy that was just cool. He was just, he was all right. He was straight up. He was trustworthy. He was a friend. Okay? Well, the Bible defines righteousness as being made right in God's sight. It's it's more about Righteousness is more about how God looks at us as opposed to how we look at each other. I can't say that you're righteous. You can't say that I'm righteous because you can't see in my heart. Amen. And, and I'm sorry, uh, Lisa. Actually, is this camera right here? That camera, for some reason, died on us. Uh, but but I'll try to stay on. I'll try to stay in the uh, camera. Okay, let me see how far I can go over here. Because you know me, I get to walking. Okay, so I'm still good on this side. All right. Okay, good. I'm all right. So righteousness is really about what God does for us, or how God regards us, and so. Jesus says in his word here, and I love this, of all the Beatitudes that stood out to me, this particular one impressed me, and this is the one I wanted to talk about, and that's the what we call the fourth Beatitude, or verse 6, which just basically says that he that hungers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So the word righteous or righteousness, some of us consider that a hard word, right? We look at words like righteous. We don't like to say that we're righteous or we're holy or sanctified or we're pure. We typically don't use those words being perfect or godly because it sounds sort of self-promoting. It sounds a little arrogant or stuck up when you say, yeah, I'm righteous. I'm holy. I'm sanctified. I'm perfect. You know, we, I'm godly. We normally don't describe ourselves that way. We normally describe ourselves with more humble terms and a little more uh, d- demeaning terms uh, than righteous and holy or godly or perfect. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that unless our righteousness surpasses. Yeah. Actually, Sister Annie, the English Standard Version said exceeds that of the Pharisees, if our righteousness doesn't exceed that, then we won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how that's possible because the 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 Pharisees observed the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses religiously, and they observed 600, six, I'm, I'm going to put this chair in. This means, Will, don't go past this chair. All right. The, the Pharisees observed, listen, they observed 600, 613 commandments. 600, they, it was required of them to obey 613 commandments. That's 365 of them were negative commandments, basically one for each day of the year. Negative means thou shall not. And then they also observed 248 what's called positive commandments. And why they came up with 248 was because back in the first century, they thought we had 248 bones in our body. I think medical science now believes that there's 206, although some people might have a bone or Two more than that depends, you know how they're created or formed. But 206, I think, is the is the accepted number, right, Andy? And 248 is what they thought in the uh, early centuries, you know, in the Old Testament. So they came up with this 613 rules that they observed. And Jesus said they actually they had a word for it. They call it the Mitzvah, M-I-T-Z-V-A-H, the Mitzvah, which was basically the the laws of the Torah that the Jews that were observing Jews were to observe and obey every day, 613 of them. That in, that's in addition to the Ten Commandments. So they felt like if you didn't keep these 613 laws, you were not pious, you were not holy, you were not righteous, you would not please God. Well, how many, how many, how many Pharisees, how many Jews you guys think kept those 613 laws. Any anybody have any guesses? How many you think? How many How many how many Jews do you think kept the 10 commandments perfectly? None. They couldn't even keep 10 and they added 5, they added 603 more to it. And so Jesus said, "Unless you can exceed their righteousness, you cannot get to heaven." I just imagine the disciples would have just took the attitude, okay, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't keep that. That's just too much. Thank you, Lisa. And I think the attitude was this is just way more than anyone can do, but the Lord is the one that keeps the laws. I love when Brother Beecham taught us in the book of Galatians, If you remember in Galatians, we learned that the purpose of the law was not to get us to try to obey the law. The purpose of the law was to show us our helplessness and our inability to maintain the law and to act as a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to the realization that we needed grace, that we needed his help, that we couldn't keep the law on our own, that we only could keep it by his help. Amen? And so it was a humbling approach impact on us. It was an impact of surrender, submissiveness to the Holy Spirit, so he can come inside of us and live through us so that we can be saved. So righteousness, the key to righteousness is not about just what we do, but the key to righteousness is submission and obedience and surrender to the Lord. So if you want to be hungry for righteousness, it means you want to be hungry for obedience. Hungry to be right in God's sight. Hungry that God gets the glory out of our lives. You don't have to be a super saint. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to have all the gifts. You don't have to have all the abilities. All you need to do is be faithful to him, submitted to him, and obedient to him. That's all we have to do. And we can do that because the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that. He said, I am coming to lead and to guide you. That's what the word in Greek parakletos means. It means to come alongside, para, alongside, helper, parallel, he's with us. Wherever we go he goes with us. Amen? So we're not doing this by ourselves. We're not doing this in our own might. It's not for us to try to do this by ourselves. That's the purpose of the law, to show us our inability to do it. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. The Old Testament was not eradicated. These 613 commandments that the Jews had extracted from the Torah or the first five books of Moses called the Pentateuch in Hebrew, they weren't eradicated. Jesus came to fulfill them. He came to show you, okay, you saw all those rules I gave you back in the Old Testament. Here's how you do that. Here's how you make that. Here's how you make it. God never liked self-righteousness. So when I was putting together this sermon, I came up with what I consider three types of righteousness that I see in scripture. Number one, I see self-righteousness. That's us trying to be holy, trying to be right, trying to be saved, trying to be perfect on our own. And the Pharisees personified that. Here's a couple examples of of abject self-righteousness. In Luke, we see, about, we see this, this Pharisee that went to the temple to pray. In Luke 18, I'm going to read all of it in the interest of time. You can read it at home. In Luke 18, there were these two men that went into the temple to pray. You remember that story? Two guys, a Pharisee and a publican. Which one of them came out? One word rap. Quick question. Quick pop quiz. Which one of them came out of the temple justified? Okay, so we got some homework to do. So if you look at Luke 18, the Bible says the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. What does that sound? Does not that sound like a person that's full of themselves, self-righteous, arrogant, puffed up? If you are fasting and paying tithes and you are giving your alms to the poor, if you're doing these things, keep doing it, but keep it to yourself. When you brag about it, Jesus said you now have your reward and you shouldn't expect anything in heaven. If you're charitable and philanthropic, if you are righteous and you fast and you study your word every day and you pray, that's between you and God keep doing it it should humble you not make you proud i mean paul says it in romans 12 if you're doing all these good things he says that's just your what reasonable service nothing above and beyond the call of duty no honorable mention. no extra merit that's just your reasonable duty and he went a step further Paul in Romans chapter 12 verses 1-2 and he said this even if you present yourself a sacrifice that's still just your reasonable service amen so these two guys are praying the Pharisee gave this great speech about how good he was and he thanked God that he wasn't like us Gentiles, um, bad people working for the government. Tax collectors is what they were, the IRS of the first century. Here's what the tax collector, the IRS said. This is the publican, the one that you guys didn't get right on the question. (laughs) Hey, well, hey, I, hey. Ask Brother Beejam how many of y'all que- how many of them questions y'all get right on Wednesday night. So I, <laughs> I'll be at those classes. <laughs> no, but here's what he said. The tax collector in verse 13 of Luke 18 says, "But the like la- the tax collector standing far off." And by the way, a tax collector was a lot more despised back then than they are today. A tax collector w- was just, you know, we we're not in love with IRS agents, but we're not just going to go out and shoot them. But tax collectors back then were unwelcome. They were considered just, you know, scum of the earth. They were horrible people. They sold out their own people to work for the Roman government, so it was just a bad scene. I've talked to you guys about that before, so I won't belabor the point. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not so even as lift up his eyes to heaven. I love this, this particular account. But beat his breast, by the way, beating his breast was a way of saying, you know, it's not like we do now. It's not like we do now, you know, like when somebody slam dunk, or someone get a touchdown, they go around chest stumping you know, saying me, you know, me. It, it, it ain't. It's, it wasn't like that. Beating the breast was not a a point of, bra- of It wasn't a, a rite of passage or a bragging right where you say, "Look at me, I'm the man. I just scored a touchdown, or I just scored a goal." Beating your breast at that particular period in history was me saying, "I'm the I'm the problem. My bad. I messed up." I'm nothing. I'm unworthy. There's no honor here. So he smote his breast in a humbling way, in a way of of basically showing self-deprecation, a way of showing humility, right? And he smote his breast, and he wouldn't so much as to even look up. He didn't even feel like he had the right to look God's direction. Such humility, not false humility. Not false humility, which I talked about in Sunday school as a form of pride. This was true humility where he felt, I don't deserve this. I'm not even worthy to be in the house of the Lord. I'm standing in the back, keeping my head down, and I'm going to beat my breast, sort of like a self flogulation just, just, I'm just not worthy. You see what's going on here? And the prayer he prays is just so beautiful, guys. He says, he bowed his breast, he beat his breast, and he said, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Kind of reminds me of one of Paul's prayers where Paul said, I'm not only a sinner, but I'm chief of sinners. Remember that? He said, I don't deserve to be an apostle. I persecuted apostles. I martyred apostles. I killed, I got blood on my hands. I was there at Stephen's martyrdom. I held their coats while they killed an innocent man just because he believed in Jesus you know i'm one born out of time i'm i do not deserve to be apostle you know when he gives his credentials over in philippians he just basically makes the point i don't even deserve this i love paul's attitude just so beautiful so beautiful he said he, he beat his breast and god be merciful to me a sinner that's all he said it is so much reminds me of the prayer of the thief on the cross god lord when you come into your when you come into your, remember me when you come into your kingdom That's it, just the words weren't necessary because the Lord read his heart. Do you all see where I'm going? He didn't have to give a long, elaborate speech, like sort of maybe like David did in Psalms 51, where he says renewing me, all these beautiful flowing words, renewing me, creating me a clean heart, renewing me a right spirit, you know, uh, take not thy spirit from me, uh, you know, on and on. Beautiful song. I'm not demeaning psalms 51 i'm just saying that in the case of the thief on the cross and in the case of the publican in the back of the temple just one sentence said it all why because we're going to probably get into this next week because jesus said when he was teaching on prayer in matthew 5 he said you're not known by your many words you don't have to give these flowing eloquent articulate prayers like the pharisees do I don't care if you can't pronounce Hebrew and Greek and speak in Aramaic and give all these flowing prayers and quote this and quote. Jesus said, that's, I don't need that. That's not what makes me hear you. You're not heard by your many words, right? He says, I know what you have need of even before you ask. So the words are actually unnecessary. Not that they're not. Wanted or desire, because the Lord said, "You have not, because you ask not." And He says that we should bring all of our cares to Him, for He careth for us. Right? So there, it's not like He's dis, de, denying or 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 saying that don't use words. He's saying that I actually read hearts. I read hearts more than I hear words. Just so beautiful. God is just so real. He just, he's not for games. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be played with. God is for real, and we need to be real. When the Lord sent Samuel down to Jesse's house to choose a king, Jesse looked at this in 1 Samuel 16. When Jesse looked at all those strapping young men and said, Oh wow, one of these guys, Samuel looked at an Samuel looked at all these strapping young sons of Jesse. He said, Wow, boy, you got some royal material here. These are some big, strong warriors, these are great guys. Samuel. The Lord spoke to Samuel, Sardin and said, "No, this ain't what I want. This is not what I want." Samuel. Samuel said, "God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I'm sorry, as tall, dark, and handsome as these guys are, they ain't the ones. This is not kingly material. Amen. The ones. It, do, do you got any more?" <laughs> and as we said, yeah, well, it was David, but. You don't want him. But God lives at the heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. And apparently these other guys weren't what God wanted to be king. Not that they weren't, they weren't good guys. It's just that God lives at the heart. And God is always about the heart. He's always about our heart. Because from the heart flows what? The issues of life. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm just so excited. I can't believe that I'm almost done. I can't believe that y'all are making me quit and I had to sit for two weeks. I listened to Rod last week who blessed me greatly. And and so I gotta quit almost, and I have to wait two weeks to. You know, I feel like I don't know what it's like. I never, I'm not a woman, so I'm not pregnant, so I don't know what it's like to be pregnant. But I tell you what, there some of the, these messages, I live with them, I agonize with them as as kind of like a pregnancy, kind of like oh, I gotta deliver it. I can't wait to share this, and so I'm I'm struggling for two weeks. I gotta wait two weeks to preach about righteousness. And that we so I've been excited about this and trying to condense 13 days of study into 30 minutes. So y'all cut me a little slack. Is that cool, everybody online? Just just a few few extra minutes. <laughs> I mean this this message. You know what? Actually, if you guys get nothing out of this, I'm cool with that because this really was for me. This Matthew 5, 6 was for me, because I've been blessed by this. This was major, major revelation in my life, this whole passage. Matter of fact, not just the definition of the word righteousness, but really the definition of of being filled, of what it's like to be truly hungry and thirsty for the Lord. Because I feel like some of us older saints that have been saved for a while, I think sometimes we can get complacent. We get ago. We get like, hey, I've arrived. I've been there, done that. I don't really need to do this. I don't need. I don't really need to fast anymore. I don't need. I don't really need to to lay, you know, out before the Lord on my face. I don't need. I don't need to pray as much anymore. I don't need to study as much anymore. I've been reading the Bible all my life. I don't need to be at church every week. I don't need to sing these hymns from my heart, and not just melodically. So, so, so we get. We get, we kind of we get spiritually complacent, and we just feel like we can rest on our past laurels. Don't be that way. Remember the commercial, Stay Thirsty, my friends? Stay thirsty, my friends, not for whatever the beer was they were advertising. Don't stay thirsty for whatever it was. Stay thirsty for Jesus stay thirsty for the living water the living water the living water that jesus told the woman at the well in samaria in john four this water you won't thirst again remember her, remember her response y'all In john four she said hook me up i'm using 22 i'm using 2022 language okay so i'll be saying like Boy, pastor we'd be messing quoting these things and butchering okay this is the whr version she said hook me up so i won't have to come here every day And endure the scorn of these other women who think that I'm just garbage and have to put up with them in the heat of the day. I come to avoid them. So if you got some water that will make me, you know, that will be a, a thirst that will be quenched permanently, I'm down with that. And of course, you know what Jesus said. He wasn't talking about H2O. He was talking about spiritual water. He was talking about the Word. He was talking about salvation. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up with this. By the way, are this self-righteousness? I'm going to give you three. That's one. Self-righteousness. By the way, Isaiah knew about that even in the Old Testament. Remember what Isaiah said in chapter 64, verse 6? He says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and our righteousness are as filthy rags. So self-righteousness reeks to God. When you think you're all that in a bag, of just when you think you're just to catch me out when you think you're so good be careful pride go before destruction and self-righteousness is not acceptable to God only God's righteousness is acceptable to God you're never good enough we're not good enough Romans 3 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God right all of us fall short but but for the grace of God we would not be saved So, we have to be humble about that. So, the second type of righteousness, as I wrap this up, the second type of righteousness is what theologians call positional righteousness or imputed righteousness. Sister Sister Rosie's gonna love me for this because that's Abraham was considered, he, he was considered righteousness. Because of his faith, it was imputed upon him. Actually, the actual verse says this, because I love the verse. I love the verse, Rosie, about Abraham and, and how God regarded his faith. It says that, it says in, in, in uh, it says in Romans chapter 1, actually, no, that's not it. It's actually in, um, in, in, um, Genesis chapter 15, it says, and Abraham believed the Lord, Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he and, and that, I'm sorry, the King James Version didn't capitalize H, I always cringe at that, it should be a capital H because he's talking about God. And God counted it to Abraham as righteousness because he believed him. This was imputed righteousness. It's not that Abraham had necessarily done anything right quote-unquote, or good or deserving, but because he believed God, because he was obedient to God, and by the way, that's the definition of belief, that we obey, to trust is to obey. Because he believed God, listen, God ascribed or accrued to his account, using an accounting term, accrued to his account righteousness because of his faith in God. Not because of his goodness, not because of his moral discipline, not because of his behavior or good conduct, not because of his charity or phil- philanthrop- uh, philanthropic ways. It was because he was a believer. He trusted God. 2 Second Corinthians 5.21 Second Corinthians says, For our sake, he became, he made him. Again, they use the lowercase H. It's him, Jesus. I'm, I'm, you know what? When I see lowercase. Pronouns, and I'm not into this whole pronoun movement. I hope you guys aren't either. Um, this, whole, this whole gender craziness. Um, God made male and female. Created he, them. <laughs> okay, that, that's it. All right, whatever you, whatever you are, just going off the script for a minute, going social media on you guys. Whatever you, whatever you are anatomically when God created you, that's who you is. All right, I know. Don't don't worry about my English. I'm being deliberately grammatically incorrect because of this craziness. This craziness. I, I I mean, people have been scolded. People have lost their jobs for not recognizing this whole pronoun madness. You know, this whole movement. And we're gonna probably get into this next year if we study First Corinthians because. They talk about this whole uh, LGBTQ plus P-P-I-N-S plus N-Z movement. I just threw in some letters because there'll probably be more by next year. And, And if you're not down with it, you know, you could lose your job, you could lose a promotion, you could get in trouble, you could be canceled. And so just, you know, I just said that because of these pronouns not being capitalized here, I think they, you know, I, I'm capitalizing them in my mind, so when 1 Corinthians says, for our say he, that lowercase h, I'm saying uppercase h, for he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, capital H, in him, who is him? Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? I'm just editorializing as I go because I just feel like God should always be honored with capital letters. The Jews felt God's name was so important that they wouldn't even pronounce it. They came up with a tetragrammaton, which is, te- which is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and you notice that there are no vowels there because they wanted his name to be unpronounceable because they felt his name was even too holy to be pronounced by human lips. So they would use this acronym, this abbreviation. And we've added the letters, the the vowels, so we can get Yahweh out of it. But the name was designed to be unpronounceable. But more important than giving God honor in that regard, what would be better would be to honor him by obeying him. Honor him by serving him. Amen. Honor him by trusting him. Forget the ceremonial stuff. You know, I mean, it's honorable that they didn't want to pronounce his name audibly. I get that. What would have been better had they honored him by obeying his word daily? Leave the ceremonial stuff for ceremonial people and let's be practical and let's be obedient and do what we need to do. Amen? No, another subject for another day. And then the final type, so just to review before I give you the last Holy Righteousness and we'll deal with this another time. You notice I didn't say next week because I want to talk about prayer next week. But And we want to pray for you, Mary, before you go this morning, too. Um, so righteousness. Self-righteousness or righteousness that we work or do out of flesh. Positional righteousness, that is we are made holy or righteous or in right standing with God like Abraham was because we believe God. When we become believers, we are positionally righteous we are made righteous that moment we are perfect as perfect can be not because we're perfect but because we are placed in the stead of Jesus because of his redemptive work according to 2 Corinthians 5:21 and Genesis 15:6 his righteousness makes us perfect that's called positional or ascribed or some people refer to that as imputed righteousness. If you're in, theolo- if you're in seminary or went to seminary, you hear the word imputed righteousness, righteousness that is given to you on behalf of others. It could also be known as vicarious righteousness. And then finally, there is what's called. You notice I got this P thing going. Practical righteousness. So I started with, I started with uh, self righteousness, which I also put in. Uh, as with a P as phony, phony righteousness, then positional righteousness, and finally practical righteousness, which is how behavioral righteousness, or how we live this thing out. Here's a great verse for that. I love this. Romans 1.17 says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, watch this, the just shall live by faith. Amen? There you go. The just shall live by faith. When we walk, when we live according to his word, when we examine what we do carefully and we hold fast to that which is good, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, abstain from every form of evil. Practical righteousness is living this thing out. Being righteous, being holy, being acceptable right and right standing with God on a daily basis. We don't have to do it for the sake of pleasing God, because he's already made us positionally, positionally righteous. He's already imputed righteousness on our behalf, which makes us justifiable. That's why the Bible says over in Luke that the publican left the synagogue justified. Remember, I I read that to you guys earlier. Just to tie up that little loose end in Luke 18, it says that when he left, the Bible says, I tell you this, in 1814 of Luke, I tell you this, that this man, what man, the publican, the guy that stayed in the back of the church, wouldn't raise his head and and smote his breast, that dude... The Bible says when he went, when he left church, when he went home, the Bible says, behold, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The publican, the tax collector, the scum of the earth, the guy that no one would even speak to in public. The Bible says that he went home justified. What do you mean, Pastor, why justified? It means that he went home a righteous man. He was, as Reg and Bobby Beecher used to say, a righteous dude. He was a righteous dude, but he wasn't a righteous dude because he was a a soul brother or a black brother or he was a cool brother. He was a righteous dude because he had been made righteous and justified in God's sight. That's what we need to ascribe toward. That's our goal, everybody, to live in a way where God can declare us righteous. I think my niece Gloria, I think she's still online there somewhere. Yep, at least I see her beautiful granddaughter Shia. Gloria sang this song, I think it was Wednesday night or the other Wednesday night that we used to sing way back in the day. I want to live so God can use me. Did you sing that song, Gloria? Yeah, Or, or was it I'm so grateful? I want to live so God can use me anytime and anywhere. That's being righteous. That's not being self-righteous. That's being made righteous by God. Positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Amen? And I'm, I'm done. I didn't even get a chance to get, maybe, I will talk about it a little bit next week. I didn't even get into the most, well, to me, one of the most important parts of the lesson was the hunger and thirsting part and the filling. We'll talk about it next week when we talk a little bit about prayer. Because I think that's important to understand what true Biblical hunger and thirst is for righteousness. So, oh, let me give you a Monday morning moment to take home. Here's the Monday morning moment. I was thinking about Rod's sermon last week, and uh, I just thought about how beautiful uh, David describes his desire for the Lord in Psalms. And, and, And Rod, you inspired me because, Rod, I thought about I thought about when you were teaching last week that I was going to be teaching about Psalms, like Psalms 42, for instance, ladies and gentlemen, as the deer pants for w- w- the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. And that's not all right. Over in Psalm 63, we sing a song that Fred Hammond wrote, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly Uh, earnestly I seek you. The King James Version Rosie says early I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I prefer the King James Version where no water is. (laughs) I just like that. I don't know why I like that because I know it's grammatically incorrect but I just like when, when David says I long for you in a dry and weary land where no water is. It, it, to me, when you say no water is, it puts the emphasis on the fact that there is no water. When you invert the verb sense and put the verb at the end, you're not supposed to end the sentence with a preposition. But when you put that at the end, I think it puts emphasis on what's lacking. What's lacking is the water. So when you say a dry and weary land where there is no water, you know, it doesn't bring any emphasis, it doesn't stand out. But the King James Version says where no water is. In other words, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I mean, until I came to you, I was in a dry desert, desperate, horrible place. And then you reached down and you saved me. You delivered me from my muck and mire, from my sin, from my shame, from my despair. You delivered me from hopelessness and helplessness. And you brought me into a land where not only is there water, but there's living water. There's water that's rising up in my belly, flows waters, living waters to everlasting life. Oh, I just, I, I just love that. I love that in Psalms. Make sure you read Psalms 1 again this week and add to that Psalm 63. But the Monday morning moment is this. I don't know if I put it in the notes, but I'm going to tell you. The Monday morning moment is hunger is not enough. We should be starving for God's righteousness. I'll say it again. Hunger is not enough we should be starving for God's righteousness. That would make a little more sense that I've been able to preach the rest of the sermon that talks about hunger being not just being hungry at the moment for a meal, but being hungry and that you've been deprived of many meals and you're literally starving to death. That, that's, that defines what the word hunger there means in Matthew chapter five, verse six. But our Monday, our Monday morning moment is hunger is not enough we should be starving craving giving up everything for God's righteousness luke 7:36 says for where there's much forgiveness there is much love let's pray lord we just thank you for your word today we thank you for this time of sharing we thank you lord that we've had the opportunity to talk about the sermon on the mount the greatest sermon ever preached a sermon that possibly, according to historians, took days, maybe even weeks to preach. Perhaps it was done in one sitting, Lord, but we know it's a great sermon, and we just want to absorb it in the next few weeks, and we want to learn from it. We want to grow by it, and most importantly, Lord, according to James one twenty-two, we want to be doers of the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. You're great.